0: We ask now your blessing upon this time. May you be glorified here through our study, our discussion, the questions that we ask and the answers that are given. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Is Lanny here? Lanny's sick too. See, Lanny is the one that we always ha- have to start us off because he always has a... Did you bring Lanny's Bible with his little notepad of questions? <laughs> no? Call him on the phone. There we go. Oh, okay. Um. I'm going to announce this during the church service, but I just wanted to start while you're thinking of any questions that you might have. And these are questions, theological questions, questions from the Bible, something that you're unclear of that maybe has been taught in Sunday school or from the pulpit in recent weeks. Um, there can always be a lot of confusion from the pulpit in recent weeks. So if that describes you, then this is your chance to ask that question and we will do our best to clarify it. But before we do, um, most of you probably heard that this last week our church was burglarized. Um There was a break-in over at the old church building. They kicked in the back door and destroyed that and uh, stole, took off with one thing, that was our safe. And in the safe was contained uh, nothing of value. I think that most thieves when they break into a church, they think a church on Monday night, probably they, the church is storing up golden guns for the coming apocalypse. And that's probably what they thought was in the safe when they took it. There was nothing of value to the criminals in the safe. All that was in the safe was uh, historical documents from our congregation to go back to like 1920. So the original deed to the land across the street, um, minutes from church meetings that go way back into the early 1900s, mid-1900s, and all of that, pictures from when I was a kid in VBS and other stuff like that, the pictures were really not necessarily all that meaningful, particularly the ones that were of me. So all of those got trashed, and other pictures got dis- distributed to everybody else. But um, by God's providence, and this is my observation, by God's providence, uh, the criminals got caught within, uh, well, certainly within 12 hours after I discovered that we had been robbed and it was more than one criminal and as it turns out they were responsible for a lot of different break-ins from a lot of different people for the last several months so this was a massive ring that got busted and our church was one of the last ones that they burglarized uh, when we went in when I went in there on Monday be Tuesday morning when I went in there on Tuesday morning there was there was nothing else that had been rummaged through my office was untouched my computer was untouched everything in my office was untouched everything in the rest of the building was untouched the only thing that was disturbed, was the photocopier was pushed out of the way, and the safe was taken, and the back door, of course, was busted in, but everything else was untouched. So by God's providence, they got caught. You might say, well, wouldn't it have been better for them to have gotten caught by God's providence the day before they broke into our our church? And it certainly would have, but we don't understand sometimes how the providence of God works. We just understand that it does, and whatever God was planning on doing through all of this, it ends up being, I believe, for our good and for his glory. A second providential thing that happened, and even when bad things happen, we can see the hand of God in these things for the good of his people. A second um, bad thing that happened was that when they had opened up the safe and they destroyed the safe, getting it open, and they'd opened up the safe, they discovered that there was nothing in there that was of value to them, so they uh, ditched the safe and all of its contents over the embankment over in Ponder Point down into the lake. And so I was in Coeur d'Alene when the sheriff's deputy called me, and he said, I retrieved a bunch of stuff, but there's a bunch of stuff out in the middle of the water. And I didn't get home from Coeur d'Alene until dark, so I couldn't run down and fish it out. And then there was a windstorm that night, and I thought, well, there's not going to be anything left on the embankment. It's going to be from here to hope. We're going to have our stuff scattered all over the place. Well, the one place that they dumped the contents of that safe was in this little inlet from the shore where a culvert drains down into there. And because there had been hardly any water, there's just a trickle coming down into that culvert. But way back in there, and it was probably from, I mean, here almost to the back row or further, is how far this inlet, and not much more wide than this row that's right here. So all of our stuff, all contents of our safe, were protected back in there from the wind and from the waves and from everything else. So by God's providence, the next day when I went down to fish it all out and to go almost swimming, it it remained waiting, fortunately, but it was almost swimming, to get the stuff. It was all still there, everything that was of value to us. And it was all protected from the wind and the waves, so that was God's grace to us, even in the midst of allowing a horrible thing to happen. So, that's it. That's the study in the providence of God. Let me let me say one thing about God's providence. And if you if you want some books or resources on the providence of God, I would recommend uh, the, the Doctrine of Divine Providence by John Flavel. He was a Puritan, wrote back in the 1600s or 1700s, I think. That's an excellent book. Um, uh, There's one by R.C. Sproul called uh, The Invisible Hand. It's a study on the doctrine of the providence of God. And the one that I read most recently was John Flavel's book. And he says in that book that that it is the Christian's responsibility and duty to watch for evidences of God's providence. So as Christians, we should be looking at all of life's details, and we shouldn't be just waiting to see God's hand in the big miraculous things. He healed me from cancer or uh, I got a new job or I got a promotion or this miraculous thing happened. Sometimes as Christians, we tend to think that we can only see God's hand in these huge, massive things that happen in our lives. When in reality, all of the little details of the outworking of our lives, everything from spilling coffee on my shirt before I get here to uh, a, ma- a massive break in at our church building, all of that is orchestrated by God for the outworking of his providence. And we can never have any idea what God is doing in the midst of things that he allows to happen to us until much, much later. So it might be that 5 or 10 or 15 years from now, we look back on a break in at the church and we can see why God allowed that to happen. We may not know why now, but 15 or 20 years from now, we might know, or we might know in eternity why that happened. Maybe that is necessary in order for somebody else to come to salvation later on in the outworking of God's providence. And so we should look for the hand of God in all of these little things and recognize that every little detail is him weaving together the fabric and the tapestry of his sovereign plan, his gracious plan for us, and the outworking of his eternal plan for his glory and for our good. Like Joseph, for instance, Joseph could have never known what the outworking of that would be when his his dad gave him a coat. His dad gave him a coat. You think that's just such a small insignificant thing. But was it small and insignificant? No, the giving of that coat led to the deliverance of of an entire people through a famine but who would have known that from his dad giving him a coat but that was the providential hand of God in the giving of the coat and then God allowed his brothers to get jealous and of course his brothers to sell him into slavery and he went into Egypt and all of that Joseph looked at later on in, in Genesis I think it's chapter 50 verse 20 where he says what you intended for evil God intended for good all of those little details even the evil of his brothers was the outworking of God's good for his people So what God wills, what men will with a wicked will, God wills with a holy will. So we could ask the question, was it God's will for our church to be broken into on Monday night? God willed that, right? He allowed that, and he willed it. It was by his decree he allowed it to happen. If that was not God's will, he would not have allowed it to happen. Could God have stopped that? Sure he could have stopped it. Can God stop people from sinning? He does it all the time. Remember Abimelech with Abraham's wife? God can keep people from sinning all the time. So what men will with their wicked wills, God wills for that event to happen, but he wills it with a pure and holy will. And that's the outworking of God's providence. All right, so that's my observation from a break-in on Monday night. Does anybody else have any questions or comments? Brian? Yeah, so there's a whole bunch of questions there. The question is, um, Brian has come across some folks who have been caught up with observing the Sabbath and a commitment to the Sabbath, believe that in Constantine's time, as a result of the uh, Holy Roman Empire becoming the Holy Roman Empire, not just the Roman Empire, Constantine legalizing Christianity, becoming a Christian, that he changed the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday, and the Christians had always worshipped on Saturday, and this same group of people now is involved with a messianic, uh, uh, well, messianic Christianity, right? What, what do they call themselves? They're not messianic Jews, but they're, yeah, messi, let's just use the term messianic Christians, or people who, um, oh, Brian gets a microphone. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what you're supposed to do with that. You want to come up here? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, right, right. Well, I'm just going to repeat the question for him to kind of get it on the tape. But, um, yeah, so these people are messianic, messianic Christians. So there's, there's a whole big answer to this. Let's kind of begin at the beginning. The question is, what time in church history did Christians begin worshiping on Sunday as opposed to Saturday? And I would argue from the testimony of scripture that that was after the resurrection, right after the resurrection. Um, there were certain Jews who had become Christians who probably still observed the Sabbath, just like they would have observed a lot of the feasts and the festivals of the Old Testament. But Christians gathered to worship on the Lord's Day. They called it the Lord's Day. And the Lord's Day is never confused with the Sabbath in the New Testament. There's two different words that are used for the Lord's Day and for the Sabbath. So in the, in the New Testament, we see the evidence that they gathered together on the first day of the week and not the seventh day of the week. Um, you remember the boy that fell out of the windowsill on, in the book of Acts, that was the people gathering on the first day of the week for a worship service. Paul says in First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, I think it is, it's one of those two chapters, that when you gather together on the first day of the week, on the Lord's day, that's when you give your offering. So the pattern in the New Testament was that Christians who had come out of Judaism, or Jews who had come out of Judaism to worship Christ and recognized Him and trusted in Him, they observed an entirely different day as unto the Lord, and that was the Lord's day. They chose that one instead of the Sabbath because the Sabbath and the Lord's Day symbolized two entirely different things. The Sabbath symbolizes or was part of the sign of the covenant that God made on Sinai. So it had a a symbolic attachment to the old covenant. It also reminded them of the, the work day and God resting on the seventh day. The Lord's Day had an entirely different purpose. The purpose of the Lord's Day was to worship, to gather together and worship Christ on the day that he rose again. And that was one of the things that separated Jews from Christians. So now the second part of your question would be, what about messi- uh, Messianic Christians? There's a different word that they use, and it's escaping me right now, but um, let's just use the term Messianic Christians. What do I think of Christians who are maybe Jews, and maybe you've seen them. They're Christians, but they wear maybe a, uh, is that called a yarmulke on the top of the head, a little little cloth thing, like a beanie? Uh, a yarmulke when they, they wear a beard. When we were, um, when I was, gathering with a group of pastors in town that I'm like-minded with and fellowshipping with, there was a Messianic pastor of a Messianic Christian church who joined us for a period of time. And so this, there was just four or five of us that would meet in this room and he wanted to come. We said, you're welcome to come. And then we started quizzing him. What's your view of the Sabbath? And he seemed very evangelical. He observed the Sabbath, but he didn't require that for Christians. Other people who didn't observe it the way he did, he had grace for them. So he still considered us his brother. Eventually we got we got into a discussion of Ephesians chapter 2, which I think the doctrines in Ephesians chapter 2 put the, the stake in the heart of any Messianic Christian movement. And that is Ephesians 2, where, God, where Paul says, God has broken down the middle wall partition between Jew and Gentile. So there are no longer Jews and there are no longer Gentiles. There is the church of God and the people of God. National identity now means absolutely nothing. And if that is the case, then there is no no place whatsoever in the church for uh, Old Covenant distinctives or distinctions pertaining to Christians who want to practice like Jews. So now we have the people of God, which is the people of God, not Jew and Gentile Christians anymore. So those type of racial or national distinctives, to focus on them and to say, well, there's Christians, and then over here there's us. And we're kind of like this group that worships this way, it creates a division that I don't think is is at all honoring to what the Scripture says God has done by bringing Jews and Gentiles together and eliminating those racial distinctives and tearing away the dividing wall so that all of those cultural practices of Judaism are no longer fit for Christians and Christianity. Now, you may be thinking, but didn't Paul have his head shaved and keep a vow and go into the temple and all that stuff in the book of Acts? He did, but why did Paul do those things? Paul did those things in order to not be an offense to the Jewish Christians and the Jewish brethren and weaker brethren. Paul was still culturally a Jew, and he still lived like a Jew in many respects, but he didn't lay that burden upon Gentiles to live like Jews, and he didn't ask uh, Jewish Christians who had become Christians to abandon all of their cultural distinctives. But Paul did tell them that they needed to abandon all of their hope in those cultural distinctives for salvation. Does that make sense? This a Friday night, probably right. Yeah, their understanding of grace is skewed too. If if you're clinging, yeah, if you're cli- that's right. Because Hebrews says the old covenant was inadequate, which is why it's passing away, why it was being done away with. The old covenant was inadequate and has been replaced by a new one. So to to say that I'm under the new covenant but I'm still clinging to the old covenant is to do with the same Christ- the same thing that the Christians were doing in the book of Hebrews, and that is wanting to have your foot in both camps, so to speak. I kind of want to have the benefits of the New Covenant with Jesus, but at the same time I want to have all of the expressions and the trust and the hope of the Old Covenant. And there's something about that Judaism and the ritual and the ceremony that appeals to us. It's it's like people who come out of Roman Catholicism, where they have grown up and you grew up in Roman Catholicism. People who come out of Roman Catholicism, they grow up with all of the sights and the sounds and the rituals and the smells and the touching and the bowing and the kneeling and all of that stuff. Same thing with the Jew. The Jew grew up with the temple, so they, they were used to smelling the blood, smelling the burning flesh, smelling all of that, the sacrifices, and hearing the bleeding of the sheep, and the, the jingling of all of the armor, and the, or the, the att- accoutrements to the priest, and seeing the temple, and all the sights and sounds and everything that was so associated with the religion. Then they come out of Judaism into Christianity, and what do they have in Christianity? The only thing that we can touch and feel is baptism, which we do one time, and then the Lord's Supper. But other than that, they don't have any of the sights and any of the sounds and any of the symbolism and any of the ritual and all of that stuff. In Christianity, they're saying all of that is fulfilled and it's no more. It's done. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. So now you come out of the shadows into reality, but the reality feels empty when you're used to the sensual expressions of your faith. The reality seems shallow, but it's not shallow at all. It's the fullness of it. It's trusting in those things, which is the shallow thing. And that's what the Hebrews in. The Christians in the book of Hebrews were trying to do those Jews to whom that author wrote, they wanted to go back to that. They wanted to they came into the new covenant, but then they started looking at that and say, But we missed the sights and the sounds and the smells and the sacrifices and the temple and the smell of burning flesh and all of that stuff which was part of our of our growing up faith and our growing up religion. They missed that and they wanted to go back to that. And the author of Hebrews says, All of that's passing away. That's it's all gone. So now you are in the substance. That was just the shadow that pointed to this. Now you're enjoying the substance of it. Don't go back to the inferior things, which was all the tactile parts of our religion. Uh Dave had his hand up here back there. Yeah, that you know, that could be it. The question is could that be part of why the Pentecostal movement is so strong today? It could be a lot of why um you know, for for us who are Christians, let's say you get saved out of a pagan background. You're you're completely hold on to your question for a second. You're completely an unbeliever. You get saved out of a, of a pagan background. You've never been to church or anything like that. There's still something about us as human beings that we want something physical to touch or to smell that is associated with our faith, right? God, by his grace, has given us, given us an ordinance that sort of meets that need. But there's still something that we long for that is, that, that appeals to our senses because we're sensual people. We are people of senses. So we want something that smells like a church or something that feels like a church meeting in a gymnasium doesn't feel like a church there are certain things that we do that just doesn't feel churchy and there's something about us as human beings that we want to have the touch or we sound something sensational something i can grab onto and say see this is proof or evidence or this gives me my confidence or whatever it is i think that there is definitely an allure to that hold on carol was first unless you connected to that did you have something connected to that no, I think there can be something wrong with that, but I don't think inherently there is. When I have my quiet time, I like to have a cup of coffee. And I like to have it quiet, and I like it early in the morning. There are certain things that I like to have around me that help me to focus. I think If candles, if candles ceased to exist, would you still be able to worship God? Yes, okay, so then I don't think here. So if if that's the case, then I don't think you've crossed the line there. <laughs> I mean, I think they can, anything can become, anything that helps us can also become a distraction, or anything that helps us can also become a hindrance, depending on where our heart is set, and how our heart is fixated on that, and what it actually does for us. So if I was unable to pray because I don't have a candle, or if I thought to myself that the candle is going to help me, help my prayers to be heard by God more effectively, then then that's a theological issue that's wrong, that has to be addressed, but then it's probably nothing different than kneeling down. Some people need to be kneeling down in order to focus on prayer. And I understand that. It helps me when I kneel to pray, I have my mind and my heart in a different place because my posture is different. But if I try praying while I'm out weeding my garden, guess how long my prayers last? I mean, they go away almost as quickly as the wind because I'm not in a posture or place where I I find it easy to concentrate. So there are things that I think that we as long as we're not clinging to them or as long as we're not theologically dragging them into places where they shouldn't be, there are things that I think which enhance our worship of God, which we should use for that purpose if it helps us, whether that's kneeling down. But see, in kneeling down, I don't think that God is any more attentive to me than if I'm standing up or working in my garden. Because I know that whether I'm kneeling or standing up and working in the garden or walking around the house or on a walk or a bike ride or whatever it is, my prayers are just as effective before God, not because of my posture or what I have surrounding me, but because of My mediator that's what makes my prayers effective and so that's it's not sin to think that Coptic Christians from what I understand Coptic Christians has nothing to do with police officers Coptic Christians from what I understand Coptic just simply means Egyptian now there I think there are certain things with the Coptic Christian branch that are unique to Coptic Christians and I don't know exactly what that theology is so I have never done I've never run into a Coptic Christian I have heard of Coptic Christians and I think it has something to do with Egyptian or Eastern styles of worship or traditions but I'm not sure exactly what those are so I can't even really speak to it. Yeah, I don't know. I think it is something unique to Egyptian culture and Egyptian area. Back to the Messianic uh, Messianic Christian. Uh, he, yeah, I don't know if he would call himself a rabbi. I think he I can't remember if he called himself a rabbi or not, but he was the pastor or leader of that group of people. No, no, he lived actually a block and a half over here um, from the old facility, just on the same street that goes in front of our church at the end of that block. On the other side, the southwest corner of that, he lived right there. He rented a house there for a couple of years. And he sort of pastored or led the group of Messianic Christians that were here in, Maybe you called them Messianic Jewish Christians. Messianic Jews. Messianic Jews. Yeah, it would be like Jews for Jesus. What's that? Right. Yeah, you'll have Gentiles in there who kind of... and, uh, And I don't know if this guy was a Gentile, but I know that he had Gentiles that were in his congregation who had converted and become Messianic Jews. And so then they adopt some of the Gentiles, adopting some of the culture of Messianic Jews, in order to have that, that expression of worship in Messianic Jewish context. Well, that's that's what, I, <laughs> that, that's what my, my tact was with this Messianic Jewish yeah. rabbi slash pastor. Um, when we questioned him about the different areas of theology, salvation, repentance, the gospel, all of that, salvation by grace, he would affirm all of that. He didn't believe that we were sending by worship on Sundays. He just said, that's your particular expression of your faith. We prefer something with a more Jewish flavor. And he had enough grace to come and meet with us, and he didn't draw a line or think, call us on, not brothers. And I can affirm that this guy was my brother in Christ because of his faith, but I told him one of the last times that I saw him, and I don't think he left for this reason. I think he, he got called away to a different place by the time we had this conversation. But I told him one of the last times that I met with him, I think that if you studied Ephesians 2, you would have to admit that your whole movement of what you're doing is addressed in Ephesians chapter 2. And I don't know how you can do what you do, and express it that way, and have some of the positions that you hold, and have Ephesians 2 in your Bible. Not to mention the whole book of Hebrews, but Ephesians 2. And so we just kind of agreed, he said he would read it, and we talked about it, and that was it. But I I wasn't willing to divide with him, because he wouldn't say that I was in sin, for worshiping on a Sunday. And I won't say that he's in sin, for worshiping on a Saturday. If that's when he chooses to worship, I don't think it's the pattern in the New Testament, but I don't think it's sinful to observe the Sabbath, to, to observe Saturday as a day of rest, if you observe Saturday because it's the Sabbath and you're wanting to keep the Sabbath and that's a different issue. That goes back to the motive behind keeping the Sabbath. Very similar to how Seventh-day Adventists understand the Sabbath, but Seventh-day Adventists proper, the the actual religion of Seventh-day Adventists, not all Seventh-day Adventists would affirm this, but Seventh-day Adventism proper has a different understanding of scripture and of salvation itself. So salvation for a a, a, a hardcore Seventh-day Adventist, salvation is not by grace alone through faith alone. In Christ alone, as salvation by grace. But they grab all of these other works and put that in there, and we all know that that's then not salvation by grace. So they look to the Sabbath in a different way than that Messianic Jew that I met with looked at the Sabbath. So, what's that? Who? Yeah, they would view the Sabbath as something that you must. There are some Seventh day Adventists who would say that you, if you worship on Sunday, that's the mark of the beast. You're eternally damned because you worship on Sunday because you're failing to. Observe the sign of the covenant which God gave to us. Uh, Deidre? oh head coverings, wow! <laughs> not not headhunters. Head coverings. First uh, Corinthians chapter eleven is the issue with head coverings. Uh, let me quickly give you, I think, a theology of what of what head coverings was and how it applies to scripture today. And this has been about eight or nine years since I studied this in any good, any significant detail. So 1 Corinthians 11, the issue of head coverings. Head coverings, I believe, is a, is a cultural expression of a biblical principle. So the biblical principle is that there are role distinctions that go back not to uh, some male patriarchal age or to the law, but all the way to creation. God created Adam first, then he created the woman. Created the woman as a help, help meet for the man. So then there is a, there are role distinctions between men and women. Men and women are ontologically, that means according to their being, in, in, in terms of their ontology or their being, their makeup, they're equal. They're equal before God, but they have different roles. Just as uh, I am equal with Thomas, but in the church we have different roles. There's an, in, because he submits to my authority and Jess's and Dave's as, a, as elders, doesn't mean that Thomas is a lesser human being than I am. He is equal to me ontologically And in terms of his giftedness and talents and a lot of his personal character qualities, he surpasses me in many respects. But in terms of role, we have different roles to play in the church. And the same thing in the home. In the home, my wife and I have different roles. She's my equal, but I'm the head of the home. She must submit to me as my wife. And that doesn't make her lesser of a person any more than Jesus is less than the Father in his nature because he submits to the Father in everything that he does. The Father and the Son are equal in the Trinity, but they have different roles. So that's the principle. That's the Actually, that's an eternal distinction that goes all the way back to prior to creation that you had the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all equal but different roles to play in their relationship with one another. Then when God created everything, that rules distinction and submission to authority that existed in the Trinity was ordained and created and interwoven through creation. So we see it in the home, we see it in the church, and we see it in, in government. That the president and I are equal ontologically, but we have different roles, and I must submit to his authority in in many respects. So that's the biblical principle. So then in the New Testament, what you have, particularly in the Church of Corinth, was people getting everything messed up. And one of the things that they messed up in the Church of Corinth was these role distinctions and the expressions of that. So in first century culture, the... Distinction between men and women, one of the things that distinguished between men and women was within a public context like a worship service, women would wear head coverings when praying. So a woman could pray during a worship service or gathering of the church so long as there was some visible manifestation that she was doing this under the authority of the people who are are authorities in the church. So if a woman got up to pray during a, a gathering, like at a prayer meeting or something like that, one of the things that they would do is she would wear a head covering as a sign of her submission to her husband and ultimately to the, the those who are in authority in the church. So if a woman stood up and she didn't wear that, she would be look as if she were usurping the authority that is given to the man and be taking upon herself a role that what she should not be playing. So for instance, if we were to ask some woman to come, and, and this could happen, so don't panic, it could happen, but I don't foresee it happening. It hasn't happened in 15 years that I've been here. But if we were to have a woman come and address the entire congregation to get up and say something or to maybe share her testimony or something like that, we would, as elders, we would make sure that everybody understood she is not doing this under her own authority. We have asked her to do this for a certain purpose. And so she is operating under the authority of the elders, under the authority of her husband, and this is an expression of her using her gifts. Um, sometimes when we've had missionaries who have come, most of the time it's always been men, but there's been an occasion when Linda Nelson got up to present that. I introduce her. And I say, we have asked Linda to come here and to do this. That is basically our cultural way of making sure that everybody here understands. Linda is not usurping authority by doing this. We have asked her to do this. So she is doing this under the auspices of what the elders have asked her to do. The head covering was that visible expression of the role distinction in the Church of Corinth in the first century. So now the question is, do we continue to practice or should we continue to use head coverings today? The answer to that question is what? What do you think? We do the same, we honor the same principle with a different expression. That's right. So when we, um, and we do it just the way that I just described to you with Linda Nelson, right? Or if I were to ask somebody to give up, come up here and stand up here and give a testimony of something, I might ask a lady to come up here during a worship service. I would step back and I would explain what we're doing and give her the floor for a period of time. And then she would leave. All I'm doing is honoring the principle of a role, distinction, and authority within the church and within the home, but doing it in a way that honors that principle in a, in an expression that is culturally what we would do today, right? So greet one another with a holy kiss. Does that require us to all kiss each other? No, there are cultural ways of doing that, right? We shake each other's hands. We give a warm pat on the back or whatever it is. We have the biblical principle that we express in a, in a culturally acceptable way. And that's what head coverings were, by my view. I could be wrong about this, but that's what I get from 1 Corinthians 11. So that there needs to be in the public, uh, in the public worship service, there needs to be visibly for everybody to see, because it is a testimony to angels, it is a testimony to church, it is a testimony to the watching world, that men and women have different roles. We do not ask women to lead in communion. We do not ask women to serve communion. We do not ask women to lead in prayer. We do not ask women to do scripture reading. We do not ask women to take up an offering. We do not ask women to lead worship. We do not ask women to do any of those things. Why? Because all of those things are, are, are cultural expression of honoring that role distinction so that when somebody walks in here, they see men who are leading, because we want men leading. That make sense? This happens sometimes when uh, you have a woman who's a missionary in a foreign land, or she's in a tribe, or she's in an area where there is not an indigenous church, or there is not um, any male to do that leadership. I think there's, there can be exceptions where a woman um, fulfills that role, but it ought to be for a very limited time, in a very limited way, and it ought to be constantly with the recognition that this I'm doing something that I should not have to do. And as soon as a position can be turned over to a man, it ought to be done. So if this were a gathering of only women, and I were the only one here, well, no, no, that's not even a bad illustration. I'm not even going to give you that illustration. That just doesn't work. That, that dog doesn't hunt. Go ahead. So in 1 Corinthians 11, what you have is the church gathering together, and this is the principle when the church gathers together. In a mixed environment, there needs to be visibly for everybody to see this distinction between roles so that we don't blur the lines. We don't want people seeing women taking leadership roles and men not taking leadership roles and people wondering, okay, who exactly is in charge here? Because we've had the issue come up with worship, for instance, with our worship team. Mel leads worship, and he's asking, we have Nikki come up and do the vocals for this part or something. I said, as long as she is behind you, as long as it is evident to everybody here in worship that you are the leader, I don't mind having women up front. But it just the, just being able to see it, it needs to be evident that you are the leader, that Mel is the leader. of it. Yeah, it is biblical. It's not a cultural thing. Right. That's why, I, that's why I said this. the principle, the expression of the principle, the principle goes all the way back pre-creation. It always goes all the way back to the Father and the Son. That was evident into creation, and so it ought to be evident in the church as well. Everything that the church does should be evident to all that there is role distinctions and that we are honoring the pattern that God has set for authority in every realm of life. Oh, well, I don't know why you see, I don't know why other people do head coverings. As a newcomer to North Idaho, why do you see so many head coverings? I think part of that, the, they see in the Mennonites probably. See, my argument there would probably be that you're, you're probably seeing people who are misunderstanding 1 Corinthians. Uh, it, there might come a time when head coverings are the expression of that role of submission in our own culture. I mean, you can't see it happening anytime soon, but it just isn't today. So when we see head coverings, what does it mean? It means nothing to the world or to the church or to the unbeliever who walks in there are other ways for us to express that role distinction and that submission to authority they i think they're trying to do that in obedience to 1 corinthians 11 but i think that they are i don't think that they're yeah i don't think that they're understanding that principle different culture entirely okay we're, our time is up people are trickling in so let's close in prayer father we are grateful for you to you for the ability to think clearly about these things and for the opportunity to discuss them. Help us to be informed by your word, and may your word inform our theology, our practice, and may we honor you in every expression that we give to the principles and the the truth that you have so clearly revealed in your word, that Jesus Christ might be glorified through his church, both now and forever, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.